This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no aliens, only Ethereans. This is the Rolf Tolano episode. Ethereans. We covered the concept of Ethereans, pioneered by Mead Lane and his crew with the Borderlands Science Research Associates way back in December of 2017. Wow been doing this for a long time um anyway you can check out that episode in the archives but don't think you have to to enjoy our look at contactee slash channeler rolf Tolano. now this is one of those episodes um, about rolf Tolano that we, we said was next time i think about three times but kept getting pushed back for some reason to the point where we just stopped mentioning it but here we are and there rolf is and away we go so, who was Ralph Talano? Here's some biographical information, and, and this biography was, I believe, written by his wife in a book that was published posthumously. Um, that means after his death, in case you didn't know. I mean, you probably know that, but sometimes people don't know that, and then people are afraid to ask because they assume they should know that, so I went ahead and just told you what it was. Sort of like how I explain why the 15th century is the 1400s in classes and things like that. Anyway, he was born in Youngstown, Ohio on August 29th, 1899, and lived there until he was about 15 years old, and the family moved to Akron. He went to school in, uh, in both places, but dropped out uh, shortly after moving to Akron uh, when he was 16 to uh, get a job. This is not an unusual thing. Uh, today, Student drops out at 16. This is a cause for concern, right? Um, in 1915 or so, not uh, not nearly as big a deal. He did continue to learn, though. He went to night school and um, started working in engineering type things and uh, kept going to night school and eventually earned a degree. So he was a big reader, um, self-educated uh, in engineering and things like that, along with um, along with the night school and everything. The obituary biography written here um, mentions his interest in many varied fields, uh, including, quote, law, parliamentary procedure, electronics, unknown or supernatural events. So that's quite a quite a stretch of things. And it goes on to say that he was able to render a decision in law or fix the TV or washing machine or build a cupboard with equal skill. I wish I was like that. I wish I could do all of these things. So he, he leaves school and the first job he gets after dropping out is for a German language newspaper in Akron. Um, another thing there were a lot of before the United States entered World War I. He stayed working in the newspaper field, moving on to the Akron, uh, the Akron Beacon Journal in the, uh, the, on, the, on the plant, in the plant, sort of the printing plant. Um, and according to this bio, got a bit of newspaper fever, um, moved to Detroit, studied journalism, became a freelance reporter, and just sort of kept his press card and credentials for, for a long time, sending out stories to wire services and magazines under various, uh, various pen names. He leaves journalism and uh, the Akron Beacon Journal and 
gets a job with uh, in the engineering area with the BF Goodrich Rubber Company, which is, you know, Akron is sort of the tire capital of the world, or at least was at one point, worked at several different companies in the region, works in Scotland for a while, setting up a rubber plant in that country, comes back, moves back to Detroit, works for uh, Detroit Edison, which is the uh, electrical company there, uh, comes back to the Cleveland area in 1932, and will work for the Vaughn Machinery Company from 1932 until his death in the early 60s. Was always an avid reader of science and science fiction in particular. He was a stamp collector throughout his life, and one last hobby that is mentioned here, quote, he added another hobby, which he also loved very much, that of colored movies, also the joy of travel, which was carefully recorded in color, end quote. So he didn't just like movies. He liked movies that were in color. That was sort of his niche, which sounds kind of odd um, until you realize that it was pretty new in the 1930s to have color movies and that movies would continue to be made in black and white for a very long time alongside color movies. So being a color movie aficionado, um, as opposed to just a movie buff is, uh, is, is kind of interesting. The obituary slash biography ends with, uh, with this quote, his quest for the unknown was always a challenge to him. He constantly was in search for the truth, sorting fact from fake before he would pass the information on. He published a booklet called A Voice from the Gallery for many years, which included many unusual or out-of-the-way stories or events. He was a member of the Borderland Sciences Research Associates for a number of years, as well as many other groups of a similar nature. He had a host of friends from his long association in the field. He was interested in our own life beyond our earthly one, as well as life on other planets, flying saucers, etc., ever searching for the truth, end quote. So that gives us an idea of who Ralph Tolano, whose actual name was Ralph Holland, was. He was a sci-fi fan. He was editor of the National Fantasy Fan, which was the magazine of the National Fantasy Fan Federation. Um, it's his involvement in the Borderland Sciences research area that concerns us today. And we've discussed the Borderland Science Research Associates before, the BSRA. But I looked back, and I don't think we actually talked about Tolano. And I am going to use the Rolf Tolano pen name rather than Ralph Holland because he's Rolf Tolano in this context. So let's take a look at his writings and some of his ideas. First of all, there's the material he wrote for the Borderland Science Research Associates, so let's start there. In the compilation of articles published as The Coming of the Guardians in 1953 were some channelings from Rolf Tolano about the flying saucers. Tolano began his communication with some discussion about the ethical implications of the saucer sightings. There are very ancient laws which declare all intelligent entities on every planet and plane, and whatever form, to be brothers and to make each responsible for his brother's welfare. Under this law, the higher races assume the obligation of aiding the material, mental, moral, and scientific development of all lesser races with whom they come in contact. The atomic races of this planet have been under observation by, and have been receiving aid from, various of these higher races ever since their beginnings. Some members of their guardian races have been incarnated among them. Others have come here from other places, using for transport various crafts which are now popularly, but incorrectly, grouped under the designation of flying saucers. So they've been here forever. They've been here since the beginning of the Adamic race. And later on, we'll talk about the origins of humanity, according to Rolf Tolano's sources. So they've been here. They've been helping us, as they do all underdeveloped uh, peoples 
across the uh, across the cosmos, across the universe, across existence. So why were people seeing more of these incorrectly termed flying saucers now than before? Well, it's because there were sinister forces at work in the world, on the Earth, leading up to the beginning of the flying saucer era. Just prior to World War II, it was noted that certain sinister forces were gaining considerable influence and were likely to create very dangerous unbalances between scientific and ethical progress. Scientific knowledge with a high potential of harm was being revealed and pushed rapidly forward before moral development had advanced to a point where such knowledge could be popularly employed. Observation and other activities were sharply stepped up to counter this trend. An even greater increase in activity was made with the premature discovery of nuclear fission, which represents a very great menace to all entities on all planes, and flying saucers began to be seen much more frequently than before. The results of the present uncontrolled heavy metals atomic explosions, while very annoying, are not particularly dangerous except from the standpoint of atmospheric contamination. It is possible, however, to employ methods which will react with certain constituents of this planet and thus cause its destruction. The present band of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter are the remains of a former planet which was destroyed by this means. The result was catastrophic on all planets and planes. This particular formula has not yet been discovered on your planet, and it has been determined that it shall not be developed. So there's really nothing new here. Well, not new to us. The destruction of the planet, the imminent destruction of planet Earth because of nuclear weapons or atomic weapons is a, a common contactee theme, as is the idea that such destructive weapons could have a negative effect across you know, all of time and space. I do like this idea that, that humans' discovery of, of nuclear fission was premature, not that it's forbidden knowledge or that we never should have accomplished it, but that we somehow did it too early when we were, I don't know, not morally developed enough. So, that's what they're concerned about. They've been here all through, you know, guarding us all through our history. What are their intentions now in the atomic age? Contrary to the dire warnings of certain cults and certain astral dwellers, however, there is no desire or intention of destroying your planet. Neither is there any wish or intent to depopulate it. Not only is killing forbidden by laws, but it is also fully recognized that the discarnation of any undesirable entity affords only temporary relief at best, and may ultimately aggravate the problem. Once they have been reoriented on another plane, they have even greater powers than before, and hence greater power for harm. Any individual discarnations of your people will only be as a last, desperate, temporary resort, after all other means have failed. Remember always that our aim is to aid you, not to harm you. That's interesting. It's sort of, um, strike me down and I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine Obi-Wan Kenobi type stuff. We don't want to kill them or sorry, disincarnate them because then in the next realm, they might be even more powerful. And so we, we can't give the evil ones on your planet this kind of, of power. So there's a desire to help. Um, there's a desire to educate us and to, to teach us. We often think of Adamski and his cosmic kindergarten idea. Earth's in the cosmic kindergarten and humans on other planets have have developed more quickly than that. But Talano discussed the same educational idea uh, in more detail, and I think with a little more uh, a little more nuance. The present situation might well be analogized by saying that when a child reaches a certain age, it must be taught to employ such useful aids as fire and sharp-edged tools. 
It must be watched, however, and perhaps at times even forcibly restrained to prevent it in its ignorance from cutting its own throat or burning the house down. At the moment, the child has just discovered some things far beyond its ability to understand or safely use. The situation is further complicated by the fact that some of its more demonic playmates are urging it to use its newfound knowledge in particularly dangerous ways. These consist both of entities on the lower astral and persons of low intelligence who inhabit the cavern homes of the ancient elder races and have use of electronic apparatus, which was abandoned there. Persons of low intelligence who inhabit the cavern, ho- cavern, cavern homes of the ancient elder races and have use of electronic apparatus, which was abandoned there. Wow. This is a nice tie-in to some Hollow Earth stuff. And, and you did see some Hollow Earth shenanigans with the BSRA people. Um, sounds almost like the Dero. Beings of low intelligence who inhabit the cavern homes and have their thought rays and things like that. It's also a good as a reminder that the Borderlands science people were not as locked off into a UFO silo as some UFO aficionados would become in later years. In fact, in, in 1950, 51, 52, you've got much less of a sense of people being locked off into one particular extraterrestrial explanation for what's being seen in the skies than you would at um, times later, even the mid-1950s, late 1950s, and certainly onward. So now Rolf goes into a little more detail about the educational aspects of our encounters with the space beings. It is clearly recognized that the only safe solution for all concerned is education, which will raise the mass intelligence and ethical level of the atomic races. Restraints cannot be permanently effective, for some will eventually evade them. Taboos against the use of the things which have been prematurely learned are worse than useless. Previous experience indicates that due to some psychological perversity of the Adamic races, this tends merely to glamorize the forbidden thing and make them even more determined than ever to do it. Even temporary restraints can be employed only with great discretion. One learns primarily by their own experience and error. These educational errors must be permitted, and restraints should be used only when they threaten to become major tragedies. I can't disagree with any of that. I don't care if it came from a spaceman or a guy calling himself Rolf. It makes a lot of sense to me. And then he goes into a little more a little more detail about teaching. And this this section, this is interesting. It's it's interesting, but it's also kind of funny. And I, it might just be funny to me, but we'll see what you think. In the final analysis, no one can teach another. One can merely place information before another in proper sequence and in accord with the student's mental capacity and understanding, and then, by various psychological stratagems, attempt to secure its acceptance as fact. Wait. You cannot teach another. All you can do is go through in all these steps that collectively comprise the activity we call teaching. Right? No one can feed another. One can only prepare edible food that has nutritional value and place the food in front of the person and hope that the hunger the person is experiencing encourages them to eat the food. You're overthinking this, Rolf. Fear is a powerful stimulus and frequently used to channel thought into some desired field. It too must be used with very great discretion. If a fear is permitted to become too widespread or too intense, then the fearful ones may, by the unconscious use of the laws of thought, create the very thing which they fear. Some news suppressions have been the result of stupidity and or lack of understanding on the part of your scientists and public officials. Others have been directed in order to reduce some fear which was getting out of control. 
So they're very big on non-interference, non-domination, only sort of sort of intervening when absolutely necessary. The responsibility is ours. They can only give us the material. Uh, they can only, honestly, they can only teach us. The responsibility to to learn is on us. So they're very hands-off, or they're they're trying to be. What are they here for? What's their ultimate goal? The task of your guardian races is threefold. First and foremost is to accelerate the spiritual awakening and the resulting ethical and moral development of the Adamic races. Second is to closely watch their scientific progress, aiding that which is beneficial, retarding that which is detrimental, and temporarily halting that which is disastrous. Third is to watch the evil influences which may prompt some to take harmful actions. Interference with these influences will come only if they threaten to cause very great harm. The Adamic races must learn to recognize and resist these influences on their own behalf. To this end, they must be permitted to make errors in judgment in these matters, and to suffer the natural consequences thereof, that they may learn by their own unpleasant experiences. Now, this is pretty clever. Um, you know, we're here, we're watching over you, uh, but sometimes you 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 have to let the kid touch the hot you know pan on the stove, right? So they learn. So if anybody asks, well, why did the uh, Space Brothers not do something to prevent the earthquake or the flood or the war? Well, human, you need to understand the consequences of your actions. We can't do everything for you. So they're here to protect us from these things, to protect us from going too far, from to protect us from malign influences, but not all the time. And so now he gets into these specific beings and specific groups of beings and um, otherworldly races and things like that. These three different tasks are being handled by three different groups, each of which ordinarily restrict their activities to their own particular task. They work in close harmony and cooperation, however, and will promptly aid one another if the need arises. Each also receives valuable aid from many different groups and individuals on many different planes, including some of the more advanced thinkers of your own plane. These latter, either knowingly or unknowingly, often are of great assistance as the eyes and hands of those from other planes who cannot work directly on this one. Since the ethical and moral phases of the task involve the use of the mental sciences, they are directed by those who are the recognized masters of these sciences, namely the etheric Atlans and Lemurians. Both of these formerly dwelt on the material plane of your planet and are now on the etheric counterpart of your planet. On rare occasions, they may use some form of mechanical transport, but usually function by non-mechanical means. Most of the flying saucers seen by you belong to others. The scientific phases are in the hands of the etheric Nors, specifically a subbranch known as the Vicnors. They are the recognized masters of the physical sciences, and for many ages past, it has been the custom of the other races to call upon them for aid in scientific matters. One group of them also formerly inhabited the material plane of your planet, but for a much shorter period of time than the other two races. They are now on Mars and Venus, Etheria, with the greater part of those who are engaged in the present operations coming from the latter place. Most of the flying saucers are operated by them. The third phase, that of coping with the evil influences, is handled by a mixed group. Actual direction is in the hands of the Lemurians, with the Nors functioning when anything of a mechanical nature is involved. Much work is also done by the more advanced groups in the caverns, and by groups on the various astral planes. So, just to give you a bit of a refresher, or a, a little primer, if you're not, um, if you're not, you know, completely in the loop on the Ethereans, 
Mead Lane, Rolf Tolano, um, Mark Probert, the Borderlands Science Research Associates crowd um, had a theory that space was somehow kind of four-dimensional, that there was an etheric realm sort of over and above our physical realm. And this was where the beings and the craft that the beings piloted, where they they dwelt, where they were from. So they weren't necessarily from other planets. They were from another level or another layer of reality, but one that could interact with ours. So this was a nice detailed sort of um, sort of thing. There's a mix of physical elements. There's a mix of etheric elements. It kind of connects the dots between the etheric idea and the, the notion of actual structured craft coming to us, machines, physical beings, things like that. Next, Rolf goes into some details on the nature of the ships and their capabilities because, hey, this is a flying saucer show. Effective observation and action on any plane can be accomplished only on that plane. Thus, the flying saucers of the Venusian Nors must be capable of both interplanetary and interplane travel. They must be brought here from Venus and converted to the vibrational level of this plane. Any of the various types of craft which you have seen could be transported here individually if you desired. Any of them could also be converted to your vibrational frequency individually, either by the use of their own mechanism or by external influences. As a matter of operational convenience, however, they are usually brought here in large numbers on a carrier craft. These carriers, by their use of their own mechanism, can teleport themselves to this planet and simultaneously convert to the desired vibrational level. They remain high enough above the surface of your planet in order to prevent detection and act as a base and coordinating center for their smaller flyers. Motherships, scout ships, saucers, things like that. Um, but they're not quite physical until they go through a process to, to manifest into our realm. So there really is this kind of, I don't want to say it's overwrought, but there's a, a very much, yes, I know we've been saying this is all very literally etheric and ethereal and other uh, dimensionally, but we realize people have seen things that look very much like structured craft. So this is how we are kind of pulling off a weird transubstantiation, transmutation kind of thing to explain this barrier and boundary between the etheric and the physical. So that was some, some detail about the fact that there are motherships and things. And he goes into a lot more um, detail on their technology. This is just a small sample. There are several types of carriers, but the only one so far used in the present operation is known as the Voku class. It is about 7,000 feet long and about 500 feet in diameter. It normally carries a crew of about 2,500, including the technicians and the pilots of the smaller flyers. They can use several different types of propulsion according to circumstances. They are heavily armed. The smaller flyers use several different types of propulsion. A form of jet propulsion, although very ancient, is still extensively used. A very small disray, playing upon a stream of fuel in a closed chamber, atomically disintegrates it. The usual fuel is air, which is collected in scoops by the forward motion of the craft and automatically compressed to injection pressure. Other fuels, including metals, can be used in airless locations. The end products of the process are radioactive and can be detected by means of usual test apparatus. Since none of the heavy metals group is ever used for fuel, however, the radioactivity is very short-lived and does not cause any permanent atmospheric contamination. 
There's a lot of this kind of thing. In fact, there's probably more of this kind of thing than anything else in uh, in this particular chunk of coming of the guardians so we're not going to go into too much more detail about this because it does get mind-numbing after a while not as mind-numbing as prior choice economics a la gabe green but still kind of tedious i did find this part to be kind of fun though the craft most deserving of the name flying saucers were brought to this planet in 1949 by a midget race from your moon these were slightly less than 100 feet in diameter, but much of this area was aerodynamic surface, the actual cabin being only about 16 feet in diameter. They used an electromagnetic or earth induction drive, but different in construction than that used by the Nora craft. It was their first interplanetary flight, and their purpose was peaceable exploration. They became stranded here without base or supervisory control when the carrier craft became disabled. The small flyers were unable to return to Luna because they were incapable of spaceflight. So they're here on Earth, physically, and there were crashes, flying saucer crashes. One of the lunar flyers was shot down over northern Mexico by the overanxious pilot of a NOR patrol craft when it failed to respond to signals or otherwise identify itself. Several others were caused to crash by radar, to which they were particularly susceptible because of insufficient shielding of their drive and control apparatus. As soon as it became apparent that the return of their carrier would be indefinitely delayed, and that the craft and pilots were unable to cope with conditions on this planet, they were rounded up and returned to Luna by a Vicnor carrier. Of the original 37 flyers, 26 were safely returned to their home base. Eight are known to have crashed. It is assumed the remaining three went down unnoticed. Oh, unnoticed or covered up by MJ-12. Hmm? There's also something of a kind of a misunderstanding of radar here, sort of, sort of radar shooting something down or, or interfering with instruments like that. Um, a lot of 1950s movies, well, not a lot. I know of two. Um, I know of one a 1950s movie, a Radar Secret Service, that, that also sort of greatly overestimated the abilities of radar to affect the world around it. So, how did Talano receive all this information? In an afterword to uh, the, the Talano section of Coming of the Guardians, Mead Lane explained the process. The intermediary or receiver of the foregoing material, Rolf Talano, is an electronics engineer by profession and a resident of the Middle West. He has never publicized or exploited his psychic gifts. The above material was received by a kind of inner dictation or clairaudience, with partial control of the hands on the typewriter. I found no reason, during my near decade of contact with him, to question his integrity or the authentic nature of the psychicism involved. I always find it interesting the different means of channeling uh, that take place. Is it is it sort of spoken and a sort of a stenographer takes it down? Is it automatic writing or is it automatic typing? So following Talano's communications, we have something called the comments of the Yada de Shiite a being who was channeled by Mark Probert, who channeled a lot of stuff. The Yada de Shiite pronounced judgment on the Rolf Talano communications. I see no reason why this communication from your associate known as Rolf Talano should not be made public, since a few will profit by it, and others will not be harmed. It should, however, be presented with the utmost circumspection. First of all, your readers should bear in mind that the situation and events with which the RT communication deals are highly complex, and relate not only to your planet, but in various ways to the entire solar system. Precise and exact statements concerning matters of such magnitude are almost impossible, and should be taken with reserve, 
not as being wrong, but as necessarily inadequate. Approaching with this attitude of mind, I find no serious errors in the documents you have read to me. So the documents are not wrong, but they might not be complete. They might not be thorough. They might not be as clear as possible. So this leaves a lot of room for other people to contribute material that may contradict or otherwise be different from this. So if there are contradictions, if we see any contradictions, it's not because somebody was being dishonest or receiving false information. It's because of our limited human understanding, which is, you know, a nice sort of way to, um, to, to cover yourself. There's also a letter in included that Talano wrote to Mead Lane, where he included some background on the beings he was channeling. They came to Earth before there were any native Earthlings on it. In fact, they came for the purpose of bringing life, including human, to Earth and guiding it until it was able to shift for itself. To do this, they had to bring themselves to the Earth plane level. I regarded this as incarnating, but they have since corrected me and said that it was not an incarnation as the word is used here, since they did not enter Earthborn bodies. The bodies were the same high plane bodies which they had always been, only converted down to this level for the time being, much as is done with the era forms at present. The time being, as I understand it, was several thousand years, which is a long time to us, but only a brief interlude in their time concept. So that brings us to the end of Talano's work that was recorded in The Coming of the Guardians. After a quick break, we'll be back with what he did next. Next time on The Saucer Life, we're going to take a look at a single work, well, it's sort of a two-part work, that I've had sitting on a hard drive forever. Now, I'd heard the author on Coast to Coast AM and some other shows back in the day, but never, never really bothered looking into what the author had written until now. So, our episode, our next episode, will be all about The Terra Papers by Robert Morningsky. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related material, and support the show at saucerlife.com, or you can support us through the link that's in the show notes. And thank you very much to those who've donated in the past. We really appreciate it. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life is available anywhere you can find podcasts and exciting news. Uh, the most recent uh, charts that we've seen show that uh, for a brief moment um, in mid-March, we were um, very close to cracking the top 100 history podcasts in Hong Kong. So, um, yeah, it's awesome. Back to the show. So next up is a book that came out in 1960 called A Space Woman Speaks. It was published by Understanding, which you'll recall was um, <clears throat> Dr. Daniel Fry's outfit. And Fry wrote the foreword. When a book is written for the purpose of reporting to the public information which its author has received from some other source, the value of the book will plainly depend upon a number of factors, among which are the nature of the source of information, the means of communication, and the completeness and accuracy with which the receiver is able to set forth the information which he has received. Many persons tend to view with skepticism information which has been received through means other than our commonly accepted modes of earthly communication especially when that communication has taken place over very long distances. In the present era, however, when communication over long distances has become commonplace and when the impossibility of yesterday becomes the accepted fact of today, 
thinking people are more concerned with the value of a message than with the means of its transmission. The following text was received by Rolf Tolano in 1954, but because it was felt at that time there would be little likelihood of its acceptance by the general public, its publication was delayed until today, when the factuality of telepathic communication has become more generally known and accepted. We present this book with the hope that you may find much of interest and value within its pages. Daniel W. Fry, Publisher. So really, looking in terms of the chronology of when this material supposedly appeared, this is right after the coming of the Guardian. So it's not like there's been seven years of Talano's thought developing if it was channeled at that time and not just channeled in, you know, 1959 for publication in 1960. Or I say channeled, I mean written, maybe, unless it was really channeled. Who knows? So on to the introduction where... Talano tells us a little bit about what's going on here. Sightings of strange objects in the sky, popularly known as flying saucers, are so numerous and so well verified that no really intelligent person can now doubt their existence. Certain details force most of them to accept the fact that these spacecraft could not originate on planet Earth. The questions which they now ask, often fearfully, are, what are the saucers? Where do they come from? What sort of beings operate them? What is their purpose here? As one of the race of people who control these craft, I shall attempt, with the aid of various associates, to answer these questions. It is my hope that I may thus be able to still the fears of the frightened ones and encourage the hopes of those who will accept my statements. To introduce myself, my name, translated into your written language, is Borealis. It might be noted that all names used in this explanation have thus been translated. The means of identification, which we would use, mean nothing to you, and we have attempted to give you, instead, those which would be understandable in your language. The planet, which you call Venus, is my home, although I do not regard myself as a native since my people did not originate there. My present home is not on the Venus you see, but on a higher frequency level world, which is somewhat larger than the Venus which you know. Okay, my mistake. It is not Rolf Tolano writing this. He is merely channeling Borealis. She is, in fact, the space woman who is speaking in the book The Space Woman Speaks. So some interesting ideas here. Probably the most interesting is the idea that while she um, is coming to us from Venus, it is not the Venus which we see in the sky. Rather, it's, it's, it's not regular Venus. It's etheric Venus. So it's a different size. And so there might be other differences, like atmospheric conditions. Your scientists may tell you that life on this planet is impossible because the Venusian atmosphere is unsuitable for life. Actually, conditions on the surface of the planet do not concern us, as we will explain later. The planet does, however, teem with life forms of every sort. As a matter of fact, all of the planets and their moons contain life of some sort. The tests which your astronomers have made reach no further than the stratosphere of the various planets, which give no indication as to the conditions of the surface a hundred miles or so below. These same tests made on your own stratosphere would indicate that neither are the chemical and temperature conditions suitable for life. So we aren't testing the right part of Venus, right? Um, because ah, nobody can live in Earth's upper atmosphere either, which kind of uh, makes sense. So, okay, that's why people can live on Venus, but it's not regular Venus, it's etheric Venus. Let's learn a little more about Borealis. What's her deal? To continue this introduction, I am the High Priestess of the Mother Temple of our people on Venus. The details in our religious beliefs are not important to this explanation, 
But I will tell you that we are monotheists, recognizing one supreme deity as the first cause and creator of all things. We call it the unnameable, because we believe that no word or name can create the correct mental picture of it. A mind housed in a mortal and finite shell cannot, by its very nature, correctly comprehend that which is immortal and infinite. It has no standards of comparison. But isn't the unnameable really just a kind of name? So, she explains that a lot of people are going to reject what she has to say because they're not educated enough to understand it. And scientists who have lots of education will reject it because they have too much education of the wrong sort. So you're either not educated enough or you're too educated or you're wrongly educated. And even among more advanced people, some of them will reject it because part of what she says may be in conflict with religious or philosophical ideals that they have. But she's going to transmit this message through Rolf anyway because enough people will believe it to make her efforts, quote, worthwhile. Now, she does say she's a mortal being, and so she is subject to what she calls, quote, the errors of mortals. And she has access to records and information that aren't available to us mere humans. But she she wants to point out that she is not um, perfect. She is not infallible. She's not omniscient, nor, quote, she says, entirely free from prejudice, end quote. Uh, she's a nor. We've heard about the nors in uh, the earlier uh, in earlier in the episode, but she says my people, the nors, are are way more advanced than humans in terms of science and ethics as well. So there's exceptions. Quote: All is not sweetness and good among us. There are quite wide variations of good and evil. End quote. They're not coming to destroy us. They're not coming to save us. They are, she says, just people. People who, quote, are not greatly different from earth folk deep inside. People who live in love and hope and fear and on occasion laugh and weep. We regard you and greet you as brothers in the truest sense of the word, end quote. So, as promised, uh, Borealis goes into some detail and information about the um, origins of the human race on earth. The Nors, who operate most, but not all, of the strange crafts seen in your skies, are one of the elder races or guardians of your planet. At the present time, we are the largest group operating in the solar system, although there are also members of other races present. These elder races have been guarding your planet ever since the first humans appeared on it. At the same time, they have been attempting to tutor you and to guide your development using subtle pressures which would not hamper your own self-development. There has never been a time since your beginning when they have been completely absent. Their numbers at any particular time are varying according to the conditions which prevail. When affairs were developing in a normal and smooth manner, there may be only a small number of observers. In times of crisis, their activities greatly increase. So this sort of goes along with what Talano channeled earlier. Um, they've always been here with us. They're our guardians. They're, they're safeguarding us. They're protecting us um, to a certain degree, not from our own mistakes all the time, but they're protecting us. Sometimes there's more of them. Sometimes there's less. There tend to be more, and they tend to be more noticeable during times of crisis. So we've got our little tie-in to Cold War atomic concerns here. This is absolutely a, uh, a time of crisis. So there's some human origins. And how does this tie into, let's say, the Hebrew Bible's account of creation? Well, Borealis has an answer for us. 
These elder races created the physical bodies of your ancestors. They did not, of course, create their spiritual bodies, since this is beyond the ability of any mortal. Those parts of the self are directly of and from the unnameable. When it was found that Earth was ready for human life, it was determined what physical characteristics were necessary and desirable for its particular environment. Then, by methods very similar to those employed by animal breeders, when they are producing a new species, they develop these characteristics. Carefully selected parents were bred together in such manner as to fix the desired traits and eliminate the undesired ones. The biblical Garden of Eden was the biological laboratory of these elder races. The word Adam is not the name of an individual, but of a racial or group name. It was common for the ancients to thus personify an entire race or group with a single name. The custom survives to this day, as witnessed the personification of several million Britishers as John Bull, etc. The Adams were sent out of the garden, as your Bible tells us, but it was a precautionary measure rather than a punishment. Being in such close contact with the elder races, they were beginning to pick up many things from observation and chance remarks of their mentors. It was feared that they might learn things, which it would not be good for them to know. So early in their development, they were sent out into the world by themselves. The women naturally got the blame for this, since such has been the custom of men since the beginning of time. Perhaps some ancient Eve was at the bottom of it. It is usually the women who wonder if things could not be improved, and begins to snoop around to find out. As long as man has a comfortable place to sleep, plenty to eat, and is not required to exert himself in any way, he asks no questions. He is satisfied with the status quo. So that's an interesting sort of thing about men and women there that is is perhaps um, perhaps what Talano really believed, or perhaps this was Borealis having a bit of character. She mentioned she had some biases of her own in that introduction. So to what degree this is Talano and what degree this is Talano giving Borealis some individual characteristics is, uh, is, is up in the air. So going on with the uh, sort of, you know, interaction of this with the uh, biblical creation account. Uh, there's really not much more there that's terribly interesting, except that there was no serpent in the garden. Um, there was no force of evil working upon humankind. All of humankind's evil is is sort of baked in. We're just we're just like that. It's our own um, decadence and things like that that make things difficult for us. So these beings are not like us. So how do they interact with us? Where are they from? Where do they live? Are they just from other planets or is it more complicated than that? It could not correctly be said that any of the elder races come from any specific place. They are all space traveling people who inhabit a countless number of places for varying lengths of time. Perhaps some or all of them did have some specific home at one time, but if so, all records of it have been lost. There are Nors in several different solar systems. For many ages past, they have had bases and colonies on Mars and Venus. Others of the elder races have similar installations on other planets. We maintain advanced bases on Luna, as do several other groups. Since Mars and Venus are the nearest planets to you, they serve as control or check-in points for those coming from other parts of the universe to visit your world. It is here that they are briefed on any matters which they should know, and make any necessary preparations for continuing their journey to your planet. It is these visitors who have made most of the contacts with you, since our people seldom need to personally talk to any of you in the course of their duties. When these visitors say they have come from Mars or Venus or some other planet, they are merely stating their last port of call, and not their real origin. Some may visit you on some self-assumed mission. 
Others are trying to increase their knowledge of the universe. For still others, it is merely a sort of pleasure cruise to amuse them and satisfy their curiosity. The Nors, in common with the other elder races, normally live on a vibrational level or wavelength which is much higher than your own. Since your awareness range is a narrow one, we would not exist so far as your senses are concerned when we were in our normal state. You'd be unaware of us for the same reason that an ordinary radio receiver is unaware of a telecast transmission. You are simply not able to tune up to our channel, yet we are quite solid and real. There are sounds which your ears cannot hear and colors which your eyes cannot see, yet these are actually just as real as those which register on your senses. I really like this idea that when they say they're from Venus, that's just that's just where they were last. It's like me saying, I'm from Kroger, or I'm from Walmart, or I'm from the library. Um, I'm not really, but I was just there. So, And it's a useful point of reference, and it sort of makes it so if we do discover what's on the moon or what's on Venus or what's on Mars and we don't find them there, well, they aren't from there anyway. They're from... They're from somewhere else. Borealis also goes into some detail on the flying saucers, which is fine, but she also talks about something called the Space Patrol. The name Space Patrol is not the one which we use, but I've selected it because it gives a fairly accurate picture of its functions. The name which we use would mean nothing to you. The patrol is under the direction of a sort of galaxy council composed of representatives of all the advanced planets on all vibrational levels or planes in this galaxy. The council functions in very close relationship with similar groups in other parts of the universe. Again, the name which I am using is not the correct one, but will give you the most correct impression of its purposes. The patrol might be called the executive branch, and when need be, the armed services which carry the decisions of the council into effect. They guard backward worlds against any outside threat, although it is not contended that they are always completely effective in this function, and evil visitors may occasionally do some damage before they are detected and countered. When a new world is evolving, they aid it by giving various bits of scientific and ethical information, although such activity is somewhat limited by their own code of ethics. If it should become necessary, they would also guard the rest of the universe against any of these backward worlds. In addition to this, they enforce certain regulations concerning interplanetary and interplane travel. They supply visiting craft with information of interest and importance regarding the places which they wish to visit. They aid any craft which might be in trouble. They explore and chart previously unknown areas. They are constantly rechecking and verifying data regarding the various planets and planes. When a new world is to be colonized, they aid in the establishment of the various life forms and maintain favorable technical conditions until the newcomers are able to shift for themselves. Membership in the patrol is theoretically open to any member of the advanced races who are able to meet the very strict requirements. In actual practice, however, it has become almost exclusively the hereditary calling of certain of the Nors. Many of the other advanced races have no desire for this type of service. Members of the patrol, on the contrary, have an intense attachment for their service. When they die, they usually reincarnate as the children of patrol member parents. These children are given preference for patrol service and are trained almost from birth. As a result, there are seldom any vacancies for outside applicants. This is a remarkable amount of sort of world building that's being done here, more than you usually see with the uh, with the contactees. I, this, this idea that, well, usually it's this group that dominates the, the Space Force or Starfleet or whatever, Every, and it's open to anybody, but in reality, there's not a lot of interest, so it's this group. I mean, he's put a lot of thought, I'm sorry, 
Borealis is giving us a lot of information. Talano's put a lot of thought into this, and it's not surprising. There, there's a lot of sort of science fiction-y elements here. It's very Star Trek-ish and um, very sort of pulp sci-fi, and it makes sense how many early Trek writers were active in the sci-fi magazine scene that you'd see some things that sound sort of like Starfleet um, in something that also sounds very pulp sci-fi-ish coming from a UFO person who was also deeply into the sci-fi scene, of which there was less than you might imagine, at least from the research I've done. So, now, there is some information from Borealis on their sort of ethical and moral outlook, including their discussion of sex and marriage. In matters of sexual morality, we again have no specific laws, and each may theoretically act according to his or her own conscience. In actual practice, certain customs have been adopted by common consent, and most of our people conform to them. Those who seriously disregard the customs would be subjected to the moral pressure of the others. Since our people are all highly telepathic, it is impossible to conceal any low or evil intent, and likewise impossible for the others to conceal their contempt for the wrongdoer. Moral pressure, thus, becomes a powerful instrument of enforcing things which have been commonly agreed upon. Both polygamy and concubinage are socially accepted under certain conditions, but few practice either. Most men seem to feel that one wife is a sufficient complication without multiplying their marital woes. Wedding rites are not regarded as creating the state of marriage, but are merely the act of solemnly proclaiming an already existing state. That is to say that we recognize only mutual love can create and sanctify a marriage. The paramour who truly loves is wed in the eyes of the unnameable. The wife who loves not is still but a harlot, in spite of all the laws, customs, and religious dogmas you can write. Divorce among us could be accomplished by a simple public pronouncement by either party, but it is almost unknown. There's some interesting stuff there that that probably shook up the squares a little bit, but it's interesting uh, that you know we we have no laws about sex, sexual activity and marriage, but we have very strict unwritten laws that everybody adheres to, and there will be severe consequences for those who who break them. So we don't have written laws about sexual behavior and mores and things, but we do have intense social sanctions for those the community has deemed deviant or wrong in some way i also like the whole thing about um being able to have more than one wife but it's very uncommon because my goodness who would want more than one wife who would want to multiply their marital woes so speaking of shaking up the squares of the 1950s and 1960s listen to this the most sacred of your laws those regarding property rights are the least among us We hold that one may retain private property only to the degree that he can usefully employ it. If I had some object which I did not need and another needed it, he would simply take it as a natural matter of course, and none would think it the least strange. You, no doubt, would regard this as dishonest. We, on the other hand, regard it to be a crime of the worst order for your American government, for example, to permit unneeded grain to rot in the storage bins while Americans starve to death for lack of it. This attitude is probably due in part, at least, to the fact that our people have no motive for trying to personally lay up stores of things against their future needs. There is an ample supply of all things to meet all the needs and reasonable desires of our people. This same condition could exist among you. Your planet has the ability to abundantly supply all of your people for many generations to come if things were intelligently produced and fairly distributed. 
but your people will not wait their turn in orderly fashion to receive their fair share, as intelligent beings should. Instead, they become a frantic, fighting, and clawing mob of animals, each seeking to snatch immediately not only his own share, but his neighbor's as well. In the field of production, you waste much labor and material making things which are neither needed nor really desired. Instead of producing wealth, you produced ilth. The driving force is not to produce better and more useful things, but merely to produce more of anything. Those who can build and operate the largest factories and make the greatest amount of anything, whether it is truly useful or not, are highly honored among you. They occupy a place of respect second only to those who are most skilled in the horrible arts of murdering their fellow men en masse. Wow, telling the uh, 1950s and 60s consensus society of the United States some things that might not entirely want to hear about itself. A lot of times uh, claims that uh, contactees were you know, in danger of being thought to be communists is, is a little overwrought, a little overdone, uh, a little overstated in some cases. I think in this case, this is, this is probably one of the most sort of trenchant and direct anti-American, anti-capitalist um, bits of contacteeism that I've come across. Although I will say, uh, saying that instead of wealth, you've produced ilth, that is that's bad. That is, that is dad joke level bad. I do not like that. So the remainder of, uh, of, of a lot of the book talks a lot about reincarnation and natural health and mental powers and stuff that I get bored with. But they also talk about the present mission of the guardians or, or of the, the Norse or of these people. Borealis talks about that. And it's similar to what was discussed in the coming of the guardians. If your atomic development should show signs of reaching a dangerous stage, then we might be forced to take some positive action. It should be understood, however, that we do not intend to take any dramatic actions such as taking over your existing governments or setting up any super government over them, nor do we intend to kill or otherwise punish the people of your planet. As I have pointed out before, our code prohibits killing, except as a last and very desperate resort, and there are more peaceable ways of attaining our ends in the present instance. Restraints, whether forcible or unseen, are of only temporary use. The only permanent solution is education, which will raise the mass ethical level of your people. Restraints can never be permanently effective, for some will always find ways of evading them. Taboos are worse than useless. Previous experience indicates that due to some psychological perversity of the Adamic races, taboos merely serve to glamorize the forbidden thing and make them determined to break the restraints. At the present time, we are keeping careful watch over the relations between the USA and the USSR because war between those two powers is the event which would most likely lead to the development and use of dangerous forms of nuclear reactions. Our analysis of this situation is essentially an analysis of facts and does not include anything which could be regarded as a true prediction. Since we have means of learning all the facts, however, plus the secret intents of the persons involved, our analysis is probably more accurate than any which your people could make. We're not telling the future. We're just going on information that we have, which is different than information that you have. So there's a lot of overlap there between what we heard before, especially, um, you know, taboos are bad because the deviant will, will seek to, you know, the thrill of breaking the rules and things like that. So the big question is, was there a threat to humanity, an atomic threat, a tangible one that they were actively on guard against. It's interesting because um, 
a lot of this is presented as conjectural, but they've got information they say they're using and they're checking things out. This is interesting right here. We consider a conflict between these two powers to be very unlikely in the near future. The rulers of each country fear the retaliatory powers of the other. The USA realizes that due to the geographical distribution of their population and industry, they are much more vulnerable to attack than is the USSR. Unless they were able to completely destroy the Soviet Union in one blow, and they doubt their ability to do this, an attack would be suicidal. The USSR, on the other hand, feels that it would be foolish for them to risk the results of a war when they are already doing quite well by infiltrating into local situations. The progress is much slower than military conquest would be, but the Russians have a great deal of oriental patience. Now, leaving aside the whole, you know, vaguely racist oriental patience thing, what Borealis is talking about here is the, by now, to us in the 21st century, familiar, you know, historical artifact of the mutually assured destruction argument. Nobody is dumb enough to start a nuclear war because nobody will survive it and both sides are cognizant of that. The thing is, this wasn't a widely known, widely spread thing in 1954, if that's when this was originally written. We lived in a world of official policy, sort of of the United States, was um, not, you know, accepting mutually assured destruction and accepting a balance of power. This was Dwight Eisenhower's massive retaliation thing. Anything anywhere in the world might be met with an overwhelmingly disproportionate nuclear response. And that's why nobody tried anything crazy, because Grandpa Ike had his finger on the button. Now, by the late 1950s, when it was clear that we hadn't nuked Cuba and hadn't nuked Guatemala and hadn't nuked North Korea and hadn't nuked French Indochina, it was pretty clear that, you know, you know, Grandpa Ike is not going to actually nuke anybody. And so we sort of settled down to this mutually assured destruction thing, but but not, not in 1954. So that's, that's pretty interesting, actually, that Borealis slash Rolf Tolano would sort of take that particular view of the, uh, the nuclear standoff. Now, despite it being unlikely that there's going to be a conflict between the Soviets and the U.S., there is a danger that's lurking. There are unstable elements in both countries which have powerful followings. If these should gain power in either country, they might blunder their way into war without actually intending to do so. Unless and until this seems likely to take place, however, we probably will continue to be merely neutral observers and will continue trying to raise the ethical level of all peoples. So the danger is the old irrational actor, the the person in power who does not care about the fact that a nuclear war is unwinnable, that might push the button for reasons that are completely insane. I, I mean, there's no sane reason to start a nuclear war, but you know what I mean. So at the end, as we finish up the book, the key takeaway from Borealis is that Humanity's developing mental powers and more people being open to the ethical and moral ideas of the Ethereans is going to be what saves humanity. Now, Tolano died in early 1962, 
1963, Gray Barker posthumously published a compilation of his Borderlands Science Research Associate materials um, from The Coming of the Guardians as a book called The Flying Saucers. And I like this from Barker's intro. Since the date of its publication, much illuminating material consisting of somewhat similar communications have been published, but never, in our own opinion, with such clarity and meaning as contained in The Flying Saucers. The BSRA associates probably exercised wisdom in avoiding wide publication of the material. Flying Saucer research was in its infancy. Only a few at that time were capable of evaluating such material and accepting it without fear and with feet on the ground. At long last, the material is herein released to UFO students and researchers generally. The saucer situation has changed. Saucers are more than 10 years older, and so are their enthusiasts. In those 10 years, UFO students have heard and read almost every theory it would seem possible to expound. Instead of greater understanding of the mystery, we believe that, contrariwise, even more confusion reigns than in 1952. The clarity of the Tolano communications may convey a ring of truth, which could dispel some of that confusion. And to the most of us who were active researchers in 1952, it may give a lump in the throat and a little added enthusiasm which may have been lost during the intervening and confusing years. I agree with that. Um, Reading Rolf Tolano's stuff really is a a throwback to, to almost the distilled essence of contacteeism. He's not one of the most well-known contactees. In fact, he might be one of the least well-known contactees. He um, he held down a real job and uh, didn't you know cause a lot of trouble. You didn't see him out on the circuit. You didn't see him in newspapers ripping people off. If anybody knows of any newspaper stories where he's ripping people off, let me know. But it's just a nice, compact sort of refresher on contacteeism, um, complete with that, uh, that historical sort of tie-in to the Borderland Science Research Associates folks who sort of predate the flying saucer phenomenon. It's good stuff. And uh, don't worry, we'll be returning to some similarly uh, underrated contactees in coming episodes. Thank you for listening. Music and special sounds are by the Chizo Media Radiophonic Workshop under the direction of Freddie Von Ronke. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>